Communication Research Podcast, a production of the Communication Research Center at Boston University. This podcast is a talk by Bill McKean, Chair of the Journalism Department at Boston University, entitled Serendipity. Oh, I lost my picture. What happened? Is it back? There it is. Um, You know, this is a pretty cool thing. I've been walking around with this, and uh, I never have a problem getting a signal. And um, it never runs out of power. And uh, here's the really cool part. You're much hipper than me. Here's this really, really neat article of DJs. I'm sure you're a fabled Boston nightlife figure. Now, if I came across that article in DJ's on my iPad, okay, I'm giving you my iPad. I'll give you a newspaper, though. It's because we're social animals. And we, we like to be around other people. We like to, like to do stuff. So when I teach a big introductory class, I require a newspaper, keyword paper. And uh, almost immediately, can't we just read it online? And uh, I say, no. I say, why not? Because they think I'm some bonehead. You know, I'm a moss back. I'm stuck in the past. And then I do what, you know, professors are supposed to do, just to irritate you. So I say, they say, why not? Ah, because you'll only find what you're looking for. What the hell? Nobody knows what that means. Um, that's the definition of a professor. We're being obtuse. We're trying to help people think. And, of course, another definition of a professor is someone who talks in someone else's sleep. Um, but we are trying to help people think. And, and that's what I think is Im- important about this. You know, by the end of the semester, when I re- they start off bitching at me because I require this newspaper, a subscription, delivered to the dorm room. I'm not even asking them to go out and buy it. Uh, by the end of the semester, I get thank you notes because they say, you know, I never, I never read a newspaper before. Remarkable, since you're in a college of communication, but nonetheless, uh, good. And they said, I, I really felt connected to the world. So let me show you. Here's a, here's a real newspaper, right? It's a wonderful thing. This is a magnificent invention. You know, it's, it's so portable. You can put it in the back pocket. You know, if I drop this one in the tub, I'm not out 500 bucks. So there's a lot of good things about it. Now, this is the online um, newspaper, and it's not bad. You know, you got, what, eight maybe stories there, and, and you know, it's a, it's a pretty good environment for reading. But, you know, an online front page only offers a few stories that then teasers for a few more, and that's kind of a poor substitute for the splendor of a daily newspaper. And what, what readers want and what generations of readers have come to expect is that journalists, highly trained individuals such as yourself, um, have gone through all this information in the world and they've used their judgment 
And what they've done is created doorways for you. These are doorways for you to go in, to find, to explore. Now, if I would tell you, uh, you, you can read this online. Click on the business section every day. I'm not sure that you would do that. Or click on science times. Would you do that? And if you did, you'd still miss that thrill of discovery, of turning the page and, and being surprised and turning the page and finding what you didn't know you were looking for. Like, I was reading the Times one day, and I don't think I'm interested in business, but I was reading the Business Day section. I turned the page, and there was a story on the corporate culture of Southwest Airlines. How many people have flown Southwest? Have you ever noticed they're funny? That's part of the corporate culture. They actually train people to be funny. The flight attendants, you know, Flying is nerve-wracking enough, but I had a pilot come on once on a Southwest trip, and it was my first flight after 9-11, too, so it's a long time ago. The pilot came on saying, well, we're uh, wagging our tongue and uh, pedaling as fast as we can. I think we're going to get to New Mexico just a little bit ahead of this. Oh, oh man, I felt so good. Because I thought, if this guy's laughing about it and he's flying the plane, this is going to be all right. That's the corporate culture there. And so you learn something. It, would you say... I want to go out and read a story about corporate culture today. You probably wouldn't. But you found it without looking for it. And that's serendipity. Uh, there's all kinds of definitions of, of serendipity. But since I did a lot of historical research, I consider serendipity the historian's best friend. Uh, I think it's probably the best friend of any researcher. But I think in history, it's just uh, magic when something happens uh, owing to serendipity. And to me, it's the biggest part of the rush of discovery. There's nothing better than finding something, especially when you weren't looking for it. And it's one of those little things that makes life worth living despite stifling interstate traffic and pain and tragedy and torment. By God, we still have serendipity. And I define it as the ability to make fortunate discoveries accidentally. Now, that doesn't seem like anything we have any control over. And probably we don't. But we can do things that make it more likely to happen. You know, there's so much of modern life that uh, makes it preferable to the vaunted good old days. I'm not one of those old fogies who'll be up here talking about the good old days because, let's face it, we have much better hygiene products now. Um, we have power steering. Uh, we have DVR. We have all these great things. But in the disposable days of now and the future, it does seem like serendipity is endangered and, and that, that we're the ones that have put it in danger. And to start with, uh, think about the library. Now, I have to often explain this to classes, you know. It's, it's this thing, it's like the internet, only it's printed out, the library. Uh, do people browse anymore? We know what we want and what we need, so we just go get it, and we don't hang out. And yeah, maybe you don't want to hang out in the stacks with some of these people, but you know, do people really browse? Because we've become so directed. I think in the last 20 years, because of this, we, we know exactly what we want, so we're, we're used to getting this immediate gratification, thanks to the internet. So the internet's really spoiled us. And I think what we're doing is we're missing a lot of these opportunities or these things that used to happen. 
and God bless technology. I love it. I mean, I, I kind of wish, you know, when you, you see somebody, you, you run into a friend, wouldn't it be great if you could just put up your phone and I can't remember your name, but oh, oh yeah, that's who that. Oh, hey, how you doing? You could scan over them and their profile would come up. Boy, that would avoid a lot of moments of awkwardness. But, you know, and you know what? That's probably not that far away. But um, the Internet's added all these new dimensions of efficiency to our lives. And all you have to do is put a couple words in a search engine. And you find, with maybe an irritating hit or miss uh, there now and then, you'll find exactly what you're looking for. And that's efficient. But it's also dull. And, uh, you know, cliches become cliches because they're true. And so here's a cliche. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. So it's the journey of trying to find the information that actually ends up being the best part. Uh, my colleague, colleague Mitch Zuckoff isn't here today, but has anyone heard of Mitch's book, Lost in Shangri-La? He was working on something else, and he came across a little thing, and he, okay, set that aside. And he's working on something else. Something else seemed related to that, and all of a sudden, wow, I've got this story. He wasn't looking for the story of this plane crash in New Guinea in 1945, but by God, he found it. And it was just a total accident that led to it. You know, if he was just doing this, you know, and he's such a, a, a brilliant reporter and researcher, you know, if he was just doing the directed, you know, I've got to find this and this is what I'm going for, and by God, nothing's going to dissuade me. But no, he let himself uh, be seduced by some of this other information. So thanks to the gods of Google, we can immediately get exactly what we want, and we miss the stuff we didn't know we wanted. So we miss the time-consuming but enriching act of, of looking for things. You know, going into a library and, you know, that book has an interesting binding, and you pull it down because of that, or maybe it's some other reason. And maybe it turns out that that was a mistake, that pulling down that book yields nothing. You know, it's a waste of calories to take it down and put it back up. But maybe it's some dark chest of wonder, and maybe it's going to lead you down a path you didn't know was there. So, same thing goes with bookstores. You can shop online so easily, but there's shipping time and all that kind of stuff. So some people just go to the bookstore, get exactly what they want, and leave. And they don't really browse. So it's all about time. All of these inventions, all of these great breakthroughs save us time. And so whether it's looking for information or shopping for clothes or checking what's on TV, that's all aimed at saving time. And, you know, think of all the things that we can do now in modern life without ever having to get off our ass. These are things we actually had to go out and do before. Again, I sound like an old fogey. We've, we save a lot of time, but we lose quality time. And when you know what you want, you lose that adventure of discovery. Um, here's one of my favorite quotes. Now, it's from Thomas Paine in another context. The harder the conquest, the more glorious the triumph. Tis dearness only that gives everything its value. Saying, if without a struggle, without a search, there's no real meaning, right? So, too true, Tom. You know, you may have been talking about basic human rights. And I'm talking about going to the store to try to find some boxer shorts that don't ride up. And instead, I find socks that have Stratocasters embroidered on the ankles. I wasn't looking for it, 
but I found it. But it's the search that makes it so interesting. So that's what, to me, I think offers the greatest reward. And when some machine, some algorithm is doing the search for us, we miss that. I'm not saying to throw away your Google, not at all. But I'm just saying sometimes we should do the work. Looking for something and being surprised by what you find, even if it's not what you're looking for, is one of the great pleasures of life. And despite what people say, I don't think any software exists that can duplicate that experience. So my fear is that we've allowed technology and convenience to undercut serendipity. And I realize that when I say something like this, people say, well, they completely turn off and say, well, he's anti-technology. He's just an old fogey. He can't get along. He can't believe that. And uh, they just close up. It's kind of like the old book, uh, Zen on the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, in reverse. You know, the technologists close up because they, uh, they, they feel you're, you're criticizing them. And they think I'm a Mossback or a, a Luddite, but it's, I'm not. I love technology. I was doing inventory in my head. We, in my house, we have four iPhones, three Mac computers, um, I think four iPads. We have, uh, what's the one that's for kids? It's not a phone, it's iTouch, iTouch. Uh, an iPad, yeah. So we got all this stuff and I love it. I couldn't live without it. Wouldn't want to live without it. So don't say I don't love technology. I, I do, I love it. And I love all that it does, and I realize it makes it possible for us to direct our energies all in the name of saving time. But again, I think we're losing time. The meaningful time that we used to indulge ourselves in these related pleasures of search and, and discovery. So we're efficient, but it's just not as much fun as it used to be. I think we're a little empty. And except for matters of life and death, and of course shopping at Walmart, uh, there's an emptiness if you find something quickly. You know, it's like, I got it. Oh, okay, well, what do I do now? Um, so I want to talk a little bit about maybe some of the times that serendipity has played a role in, in my life and in, in my writing and in my career because it's, it's really given me new trajectories uh, different times, little bumps of serendipity come along and, uh, and they help. First one I remember that was key to me was... Uh, when I was a reporter, um, we got a call in the newsroom and the in operator came on the intercom. When the phone rings in the newsroom, of course, it's like, oh. Uh, the operator said, a woman on the phone wants to talk to a reporter. And everyone jumps under their desks because, you know, they don't really want to talk to people. Um, but I, we were in the middle of this philosophical debate with the city editor. The city editor thought every meeting, every meeting, needed to be covered, including uh, the Girl Scout Council. It was a smaller town, obviously. And uh, so one reporter quit over that one. But we we're trying to say, look, everybody has a story. We need to go out. We need to cover our community. We need to do this. So I thought, by God, I'm going to answer the phone. It was a brave step. So I took the call. And it was a woman who was very nice, but she, was, uh, she wanted me to do a story on her brother. I'm sorry, ma'am. What's he done? I'm just really proud of him. OK. Um, he was a combat veteran in Vietnam. Okay. He came here to the university, Indiana University, and he went. To th he's uh, finished college in three years. Okay. It's not unusual. Okay. I'm still waiting. And he's been accepted to Harvard Law School. 
Harvard makes mistakes too. Okay. But I thought, okay, I, I believe everyone has a story. I'm going to go interview this guy. So uh, I went off to the interview, and we're having a nice chat. And he was just embarrassed as could be that his sister put me up to this, and he was joking around. He started talking a little bit about his career in Vietnam. And um, he said something, and I said, oh, yeah? Said something else? Oh, yeah? We kind of went down this serendipitous little path. And what I found out was that he was a platoon leader in Vietnam and was the first man in U.S. military history to apply to be a conscientious objector while serving in a combat zone as a platoon leader. And that's something I sure as hell wasn't looking for. I didn't expect to find. And that little experience when I was young made me think, this is, I've got I to do this. I've got to be, i got to play that role of the shovelhead and ask these dumb questions all the time because you never know what you're going to get. Probably the, the example of serendipity that really snowed me was, was this one on my, uh, when I wrote a, a dissertation. I was uh, at University of Oklahoma for some years and I was uh, getting a PhD while I was teaching there. And uh, my advisor was the former president of the university. And um, I, he had this approach where he said, you're not writing a dissertation, you're writing a book. And I like that. He was a historian. He had this very practical attitude. So um, I decided to write about something that had happened at, at that university on this day called Field Day. And it had to do with the protest of the war in Vietnam. Um, university of Oklahoma wasn't necessarily known as a hotbed of dissent. But in 1970, uh, more than football, it was the spring, but uh, uh, you know, football is, is a year-round subject there at, at, o, at OU. Uh, typical college campus, Jimi Hendrix had just played there. Of course, he would die that fall. Uh, the new president had been inaugurated and had, at the inaugural ball, had the uh, uh, strawberry alarm clock play. So it's kind of a you know, happening little joint. Um, and this was the new president. And I kept hearing about this guy because my advisor was a, a former president of the university and then we had a new president since him. And then there was this guy who had been president since Moses was in school and he was president 44 years or something. He was still alive. And I kept hearing this name, Holloman. Okay, I'm, I was new at the university. Who's this guy? Where's he fit in? And I found out he served 18 months as president in between the, the long-serving guy and the guy that was my advisor. And so I started asking old-timers at the university what they thought of him. And one guy I asked, he, he just froze when I said the name, and he took off his glasses and he started, he was crying, and he said, I love that man. So I asked someone else, just down the hall, same building, what do you think of Herb Holloman? He was a son of a bitch. So I thought, this is my kind of guy. You know, I like people that, you know, totally polarize everybody. So I began asking questions. I thought, well, why was he president only 18 months? Well, uh, so happened his presidency uh, fell during the aftermath of Kent State, the shooting at Kent State on May 4, 1970, when the National Guard uh, opened fire on a crowd of student protesters on campus and killed, killed four students. That day, 
the rest of the nation, the campuses went berserk. Uh, there was a riot at the University of Oklahoma. Many other schools also had demonstrations. And uh, most universities said this, go home. Everyone gets an A. Go home. Really one of the few major universities to stay open was the University of Oklahoma. So, well, that's interesting. Why was that? Herb Holloman. Okay. So there was this big demonstration in the aftermath of the Kent State shootings that afternoon. And that happened to be the day that uh, Herb Holloman was having some event. He was so new as president that it was some event related to his inauguration or whatever. Well, he had a real problem because he felt the university should stay open. You know, isn't this the bastion of free speech? Okay. But he had all these forces that were trying to close the university, primarily the governor of the state. And so he had to create a coalition. And what he got was he got the administration and the faculty to work together. It's the only time that's ever happened in the history of universities. He got student government to work with the student dissent, members of the Students for a Democratic Society. He formed a coalition of staff, students, faculty, radicals, weenies, whatever. He got them all together for this common goal of keeping the university open. And the reason was the governor, Dewey Bartlett, thought that the governor of Ohio had had a pretty good idea. It wasn't necessarily saying he wanted to go kill any students. But that afternoon, he sent the National Guard down, and they patrolled campus. And it was sort of baiting him. In fact, the campus there was huge. It had been a formal, former naval base. Actually, there were two naval bases in that town. It's a landlocked state. I never figured that one out. But anyway, uh, so he had his uh, National Guard troops camp on the south base, uh, the southern part of campus. So Governor Bartlett wanted confrontation, and Holloman wouldn't give it to him. And uh, here's some pretty pictures of campus, just so you see how lovely it is. Um, everything was aiming toward the following week, a week after the Kent State shooting. The ROTC was going to have its award ceremony on campus. Student radicals wanted to disrupt this. Holloman said, God bless you, you have free speech you will be heard. The ROTC people say, but you know, we want to have our, you will, you will be heard. You will have your event. And what he ended up doing was, what's the symbol of Oklahoma back then and now is football. So he had everyone go to the football stadium and the 50 yard line to the south end zone was the award ceremony. 50 yard line to the north end zone was all the radicals, the picketers, the shouting. And it was uh, a cacophony but it was free speech. He kept the university open. That's what made him a hero. That's why people say, I love that man. He kept the university open. He said, of these times, above all else, a university needs to stay open. And of course, the governor fired him. That's why he wasn't there very long. Well, my research was tough because a lot of these people were gone, particularly the radicals. They, they had dissipated. I found the student government president Nobody stays in Oklahoma. They all go somewhere else. And I'm getting all my research together, and I, I, I can't wait to interview Holloman, who had come back to MIT.
He's an engineer. Seems like everyone in administration is an engineer. And he died before I could talk to him. Luckily, serendipity intervened. Because I was an administrator at that university, I was talking about this with one of my friends who worked in the central administration. I said, yeah, it's a pisser, isn't it? Guy dies on me. And he said, oh, Holloman. You know, I think we got some stuff of his in the basement of the administration building. Because they had never done anything. He wasn't there long enough. So there's no papers, no, no archives. So he leads me down to the, the basement, and there are all these file cabinets and boxes. And he says, you know, I won't tell anyone you're here. Why don't you just look around? So I looked around, and by God, there was all the correspondence for, for Holloman. In fact, I looked and looked, and I kept digging around and finding stuff. Finally, I found that somebody, one of his assistants, in the week after all these events went down, had interviewed him and transcribed the interview. And I thought, that's exactly what I want. Then I rooted around the box some more, and I found the tapes. And I thought, do I really need to listen to the tapes? I got the transcript. The guy's already done the hard part for me. Eh, what the hell? I didn't have that kind of tape player, but I found a tape player that would take those little micro cassettes. And what I learned was, while he's telling, doing this narrative about what had happened, he was crying. Didn't say that on the transcript. And I put it in another context. So I called his widow, lived up here, and she said, oh, didn't you know the day of that riot? It was the day I met my husband. I was a new faculty member, and he was hosting a reception for me. And that was the day we met. That was the most intense, emotional time of his life. And it really made this story into something better. So I'm working on this, and over the holidays, I'm, I'm back home. And my father had died some years before and left this wonderful library that my big brother and I were still fighting over. And <clears throat> my mother had said, Bill gets the books, You're, you take all this other stuff. Um, so my brother's pissed about that. And so every time he'd go see my mother, he'd sneak a few books out. So anyway, I was letting him get by with it. Or at Christmas dinner, and he says, how's that, how's that thing going about uh, that riot out there? And I just told him, you know, it was interesting, it was this, it was that. And suddenly this look comes over his face, and he gets up from the table, doesn't say a word, goes up the spiral staircase to his attic, brings down this book and says, you can keep this one. Because this guy, Rollo May, had also written about that event. While the students were protesting the ROTC, before the, the big event in the stadium, they were protesting. It was May, but it's Oklahoma. So there was a weird cold snap. And they're all marching back and forth out there with, uh, with their pickets. And uh, Colonel Leroy Land was in his office with his secretaries looking out and saying, not anything like them dirty hippies or this or that. He says, those kids look cold. Let's get them some coffee and donuts. And Rollo May used that in this book saying this was a great example of co-opting because they took the coffee and the donuts to the kids and the pickets dissipated. He said, this man was brilliant. Colonel Land was this and that. And so he went to interview Colonel Land, who I later interviewed also. And he just said, no, I just thought they were cold. But it was another little bit where this accident happened. But the greatest accident uh, happened because of my colleague there, Ned Hoffman.
Now, Ned was a lunatic. He was the guy in the faculty who was our, our film professor. And like I said, it was an old naval base, so they had an old movie theater. Well, Ned got that. And he had a studio, and he made films. In fact, I'm sure you all have seen this one, Stark Fear, which was actually filmed in a sorority house on the university campus. That doesn't happen very often. Starring Beverly Garland, you all remember her, the, the wife of Fred McMurray and My Three Sons. A big star. So anyway, Ned did things like that and you know, was just a, a beloved teacher, but also a, 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 just a total kook. And nobody would listen to him. You know, he had all these great stories and he was bringing you know, directors and producers, all these people, you know, major, had done all the President's Men or done all these major films, and he's getting them to come to Oklahoma. So the guy was just really a, a, a wonderful guy. And I was one of the few people that would, would talk to him because they were all used to him, all the other members of the faculty. So I'm sitting in the lounge one day, the mail room, just talking about, oh, geez, I've got to figure out how to write this thing. I'm interviewing all these people, and the memories are not jibing. And Ned makes a rare visit from his part of campus, comes in, gets a cup of coffee, and takes a couple bites out of what we're saying. And he says, say, did anyone ever tell you I, I filmed that? So I went out to the South Base, where he had all of his film, the raw footage, and he had filmed the event. It's like it confirmed a lot of stuff. It, it really brought the story into focus. So you say, well, that's luck. I think that's serendipity. That was just a, a, a happy accident. So serendipity has followed me wherever I go. I did this book uh, some years ago called Highway 61, which was a, a, we were contracted to write the book. I was taking my grown son, he was turning 19 on the trip, on this 6,000 mile road trip. We're going to go up to Canada and go all the way down the middle of the country. And we signed the contract in like September and the trip was to be the following May. And in between I was going to do all this research and get ready and set up interviews. And I didn't do a damn thing. So I got in the car and I, I had no idea what would happen. And the whole story was about serendipity. It was about people kind of walking forward and just saying, hi, I'm crazy, I'll be in your book. Um, because there were so many nutty people. But another discovery we made on that trip had to do with music because, um, you know, the music is so important to both of us and my son is closer to your generation, obviously, than, than mine. I grew up in an era dominated by that great and subversive force of the 20th century, radio. Because 50 years ago, we were just beginning to cast off the elements of American apartheid, it was rel relatively easy for our society to enforce these racial barriers with separate schools and separate stores and separate neighborhoods. But the one thing that they couldn't regulate was the air. And radio traveled through the air, music traveled through the air, and uh, the air does not observe Jim Crow boundaries. And so white kids alone in their rooms at night would tune their radios because you know the radio waves go wacky and they'd hear the music of black America. You know, they weren't looking for it, but they found it. And black kids did the same thing. That's why Chuck Berry grew up listening to You Couldn't Get More White Than the Grand Ole Opry. And all these white kids who'd never even seen a black person in northern Minnesota, like Bob Dylan, could hear the, the music from the Mississippi Delta. And that's how we got to know each other. I think that's how we kind of fell in love with each other. So the result in my childhood was kind of the serendipitous exposure to music that no amount of downloading can really duplicate. 
And I know people think I'm smoking crack when I say it, but when I was a kid, I remember turning on the radio and you'd hear Frank Sinatra, followed by James Brown, followed by the Beatles, and then we have the Supremes, and you know, you never knew what was happening next. Music could really astonish you. And I sort of feel like, again, we're directed. We can get exactly what we want through downloading, and you know, we hear this is hip and we want to be hip. That's the nice thing about getting older. You don't care anymore about having to be hip. You, know, you just don't care what people think. So I, I avoided all that Dave Matthews stuff. I never had to pretend to, to like that boring guy. But anyway, music could astonish me then. And uh, often we miss that element of the chance encounter with, with musical genius. And one thing it's done is I think it's really balkanized the audience because we don't have a sense of community about music anymore. In fact, my older children in their 20s uh, often lament. They say, you know, my generation isn't going to have that music to fall in love to that your generation had. And it really is an odd paradox that the audience today is larger and the choices are enormous, but of course, more is less. We have hundreds of choices on television, but I don't think we'll ever have that feeling of global community that we had when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon in 1969 or, or ever have en masse the moment that the world had when we met the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show, or uh, a moment of global mourning uh, that we had when President Kennedy was uh, assassinated in the subsequent funeral. You know, we may have had three choices back then, and now we have, I would say 300, but we probably have more than that. We have, I think on Comcast, it's close to a thousand channels, yet very few of them are actually in focus. Um, but anyway, the same thing goes, goes in music. We're so formatted now that we, the stations stratify the market. But anyway, the serendipity continues in my life. Uh, some years back, I did this uh, biography of Hunter S. Thompson called Outlaw Journalist. And I was determined to tell a good and coherent story of his life. And uh, you know, Hunter was a kid once, believe it or not. I found some kids that attended first grade with him. You know, I uh, knew I, I talked to some of the girls he dated in high school, so I was, you know, really happy with my sources on that. I even talked to some of his buddies from his Air Force days, which is where he got his start in journalism. Good sources wherever I went. Uh, when he lived in Puerto Rico, which is the basis for the movie The Rum Diary, uh, I talked to his other two roommates, one of whom became his wife and one who was his best friend. Um, that's his wife Sandy. You know, she was you know great source on his life, his meaning, his career, his tragedy, all that sort of stuff. As a journalist, you know, one of his first big, uh, big splashes was writing about the Hells Angels motorcycle gang. I interviewed the maximum leader of the Hells Angels. I'm just cooking here. I got, I got the sources. When it comes to Rolling Stone, I talked to all the editors and writers he used to work with. That's him blowing uh, flames at the editor of Rolling Stone, Jan Winter. This is something he used to do for fun. <laughs> Uh, to gas them. So, I'm doing great. But then, in the 70s, something happened to Hunter. He went into a five-year funk. And people weren't really sure what he was doing. The, the pr predominant theory was that this was this great, uh, wild, crazy American journalist, and he had burned himself out. He was a drug casualty. I also thought he was heartbroken because his muse was President Nixon. And he hated Nixon so much that when Nixon resigned, he couldn't figure out what to do anymore. But anyway, nobody really knew what he was doing for those five years of his life. 
And ironically, during that time, that's when he discovered the one drug that hindered his writing. Remember, never put anything up your nose other than your finger. Uh, and also, that was the time when he became really uh, most famous. Somebody had put out, uh, or his publisher had put out an anthology of all of his earlier writing. And this was a number one bestseller. It was huge. So he's like the most famous writer in the world. And he's kind of disappeared. He was a writing. Um, so, for those of you who think that I'm anti-technology, here is some technology-aided serendipity. One morning I woke up and I got a, uh, an email from this guy named Tom Corcoran who said, I put the, word, the names Hunter Thompson and Bob Dylan into my Google this morning, and I got you. Why? So I wrote back and I told him, well, you know, years ago I wrote these books on Hunter and, and Dylan and, uh, you know, the kind of semi-scholarly books and people plagiarize them all the time for their high school research papers and stuff. And, and that was it. You know, I, I, had, I didn't know if I wanted to, I had no idea who this Tom Corcoran guy was. And he wrote back and he said, well, um, I knew Hunter. So I got back in touch with him. I thought, I'll interview anybody who'll talk to me. I said, I'm working on another book about him. He said, yeah, we wrote a movie together. You what? There'd never been any mention of Hunter writing a movie. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, when he lived in Key West. When did he live in Key West? You know that five-year funk? That's where he was. So I got to meet this guy, and he became a tremendous source on that book. And he kind of took me back to the 70s when... When he lived there, he's obviously much younger then. Um, and here's a guy who had a real serendipitous life. Went to college, he got his degree in English literature. Was a naval officer. Was ready there at the end of the 60s to settle down to a career as a, uh, an academic, to be a professor, elbow patches, and uh, he's 2.5 kids, a dog, a wife, you know, a whole family. And then he went to Key West. And within a couple of months, he was selling tacos from a three-wheel bicycle. As they say, the best laid plans go off to stray. So this guy's life was serendipity in, in action. So what he did was he introduced me to this whole lost period of Hunter Thompson's life. And it turns out that this was the happiest time of Hunter's life because he wasn't having to portray that character that followed him around character everyone thought Hunter Thompson was, this wild and crazy man. That's him with Bill Murray, who was studying his every move, because he was going to portray him in a film. But uh, this was a, 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 different, a, a different time in his life. And uh, it was also the time when he was going through a very nasty divorce, but he started this relationship with a producer from Saturday Night Live and uh, began working on a film, it's called Cigarette Key, it was never produced. Um, and there's Tom Corcoran working on it with him. All this was just an accident of serendipity. This guy found me. Wasn't really looking for me, but he found me. And I gotta say, it really enriched the book. In fact, when the book came out, Hunter's literary executor, the historian Douglas Brinkley said, I didn't know any of that stuff about Q. We didn't know where he was. Nobody knew a thing about that life. And it was a complete accident. And uh, 
What happened is near the end of the research on that book, I was with Tom Corcoran again, and he said, I want you to hear this. And he played a phone message from Hunter from near the end of his life. Near the end of his life, Hunter Thompson, as you know, killed himself in 2005. But last couple of months, when he'd made up his mind to do that, he started saying goodbye to people. They didn't know it until later, but that's what he was doing. And so the last message that Corcoran got from him was Christmas night, 2004. Tom, we had an active night tonight. I spent a lot of time talking with Buffett down at Nicholson's house. Name dropper. We both got very excited about the Key West years, the missing years, the ones you have so well documented. We're going to reconvene down there and go back over the stories, the photographs, maybe do a little boating. Let's have the boys back, Chatham, McGuane, whoever's alive. It's going to be good. We're going to have a little fun with this one. And so obviously uh, they never did that book. Um, and uh, Tom Corcoran never returned that call. Uh, and he regretted it. Now, I'd always wanted to write about Key West because um, my wife's from there, and I think it's an interesting culture. And, you know, it seems like almost every person she knew in high school had done some time. Um, I was interested in the drug culture there. She said, oh, yeah, uh, Johnny used to uh, go golfing, and after the nine holes, at the, at the ninth hole, they'd consummate the cocaine deal and then go play the back nine. And so I thought it was an interesting culture, and I wanted to write about it, but I just didn't really know what the angle was. And so... Uh, Thanks to Corcoran, he said, what you need to write about is the literary culture there and focus on the great concentration of artists that came there in the 1970s. In fact, uh, uh, Jimmy Buffett came there as a failed country singer, basically homeless, and he bottled up the essence of Key West and he made a career out of it. But I was also interested in this writer back here, Tom McGuane, who was the most serious writer of his generation, but at one point went a little cuckoo put too many things up his nose other than his finger, and uh, was, the, by his own account, the most notorious drug and alcohol abuser of his generation. He kind of took on the persona of Captain Berserko. And yet, one day just walked away, gave it up, been clean and sober for 35 years. He went from having three wives in three years to being married to one woman for 35 years. So anyway, it was a good story. I'm wondering how to report this, and then one day, I'm down in Key West doing research, and I'm standing by the pool at the Eaton House, listening to my friend John Frenzy play, and I turn to the guy next to me, and we're just chatting, and uh, I say, you been here much? I come every year. Oh, that's interesting. Where are you from? Portland, Maine. Well, what about Key West? He said, I'm just fascinated with it. Well, what do you do for a living? I'm a rare book dealer. Turns out this guy has the most complete set of newspapers from the 19th century in Key West, more complete than the public library. He's a collector, and he gave me everything that I needed to do the, uh, the history of Key West in the background. He had saved the programs from the opening of the Florida uh, the uh, Overseas Highway, everything. So that was pretty magical. Anyway, the, uh, the story is about... Uh, really about the friendship of these four artists over the years. And uh, it, I, I started it thinking it was gonna be a happy ending because I saw this guy's redemption, you know, giving up the drugs and alcohol and, and the serial marriages. I thought that was a happy ending. It turns out that there was a, a tragedy involved, so so much for that. But it's nice to see that they, um, their friendship has all survived for 50 or 60 years and they're all you know, pretty great uh, 
great American artist. Well, you might say, oh, by the way, that's the book cover. Um, I have seven children, and uh, I always like to point out, uh, you know, they keep asking when we're going back to three meals a day. So, you know, do your part. Uh, buy a few copies. It's a terrific Christmas gift. Um, you might just say this is luck, you know, to, to find these things, like all that stuff with the, the Oklahoma uh, uh, riots. That was just amazing that that all happened. It, you know, you call it luck. I call it serendipity. And as I said, I think the modern world kind of conspires against it. You know, we have to work to make serendipity happen. And, and I don't blame technology at all because I think we're, you know, we control technology. You know, we're the people. We're in charge. We invented this stuff. So we need to lead the technology to, and not allow it to lead us. You know, the world is a better and more cost-effective place because of technology. But, you know, it's the imperfections in life that make it so grand. Uh, it's just a wonderful, messy catastrophe. And just because we have something new, why should we throw out that stuff that's been working? Just because we have a new toy. You know, we've done all right up to now. There's no reason to toss aside everything. And when I, as I said, whenever I say something that sounds critical of technology, the people on the technology side will say, well, you know, it's either or. Well, why can't it be both? Why can't it be both? An example is, you know, my wife Nicole is a magazine editor, and she was on Deadline once and frenzied. I think she's always frenzied. Uh, but anyway, she asked one of her interns, who was one of my students, and I've never lived this down. Uh, she said, uh, look, uh, I need this. Uh, can you get this phone number of so-and-so for me? Okay, can you get the phone number? And about five minutes later, she says, where's the phone number? And he says, I can't. Uh, what did he say? The server's down. Use the phone book! You know, for God's sakes. So we need to figure out how to use the phone book again or how to be surprised again or how to make surprises possible. And to learn, as we did as children, you know, to uh, learn that awkward and bug-like discovery because, well, otherwise, when it's all over and we face the distinguished thing, we've led an efficient but a fairly dull life. You know, I put some of these thoughts together in a newspaper article some years ago. It appeared in the opinion page of the St. Petersburg Times. And then got picked up by the New York Times. In fact, it's still on the Times website. And a few months after that, I decided, I wonder what the hell happened with that. So I put my name and serendipity in the search engine. And wow, all hell had broken loose in cyberspace. I found a B the BBC had done a story on my article. Didn't talk to me. But that a huge debate had been going on in the blogosphere in Britain, which, of course, I lay awake worrying about all the time. And it was the closest thing to a fist fight. And some people agreed with me, but honestly, not many people did. And a lot of bloggers were horribly pissed off. And someone said, doesn't he know that now we have software that duplicates serendipity? And I thought, you kind of missed my point, you know? I don't want an algorithm to replace my brain. If I stop using my brain and my leaps and my jumps and all the weirdnesses that go on up there, I'm going to forget how to use it. So uh, that was one thing that bothered me. And there was a lot of sniping. And because I had criticized technology, everyone assumed I was a shovelhead. And one young woman wrote, I bet he doesn't even know how to turn on a computer. I bet he doesn't have an email address. So you know what I did, of course. I emailed her. And I said, uh, I really enjoyed your essay. and love to talk to you about this. However, you know nothing about me. 
She never answered. In fact, I wrote to about six people who had taken me to task. I made six attempts to communicate with other human beings, didn't get a single response. And I thought, this is really sad. We have this great technology and this makes instant communication possible. And this could bring us together. Instead, we're all divided, separated into hives. We go into our hives and we rant and we rave. We don't actually talk to other human beings. And you know, every day I come to work, I see people walking around, stuff plugged in their ears, not talking. If somebody actually engages in a conversation with another person on the subway, they're looked at like some kind of leper. You know, why are you doing that? Everyone's plugged in. And, you know, we say we have friends. But are they real friends or are they Facebook friends? Is a virtual friendship as deep and rewarding as what a, I guess we'll have to call it a bio-friendship. You know, a real friendship. And, you know, I've known a lot of really clever, talented students who were absolutely brilliant behind a keyboard but couldn't communicate in person. And it comes back to the fact that we're all social animals and we're, we're tactile. And sometimes it seems if technology is making us deny these basic elements of our makeup. We like to think we're well informed. I don't need a newspaper. I have Google News Alerts. Really? That's cool. What's in your alert? Your favorite football team? Updates on the best apps for your new smartphone? I know what's in there. Kim Kardashian's butt. That's what's in there. I doubt that you'll put poverty, injustice, racism, or bigotry into your search engine. You'll find those stories. They're there. You'll find them through serendipity. You won't be looking for them, but you can find them. And, you know, could it be that technology might be a factor in making us care less about other people? About, uh, we're becoming more selfish, I think, because we're plugged in. We're not engaged in the world. And so I worry that we might become selfish and self-centered if we allow ourselves to avoid any information that might make us uncomfortable. That's why I still like this thing here. And I like NPR. And I like these sources of news that I trust, where I think people have put together something, those doorways that we can open. Serendipity. Uh, it's a great surprise. Um, you know, some years back, uh, Tom Wolfe came to the old university where I worked, and I hosted him for a week. And I don't drop his name for effect. You know, it's only two syllables. It won't hurt. Um, but I'll never forget something he told me that relates to serendipity. He was researching a book on college life, classes and sororities and bar hopping. And my daughter was also in school where I taught. So she took him to a sorority house. And he went out to the bars. And he did all this stuff. He's just a consummate reporter. He even hung out in my office. So kids would come in for counseling. And they'd look over and say, who's the dude in the white suit? So he's a great reporter. But he also eviscerates people, you know. Really as a way of looking at people and, and taking them apart. So I told him at one point, I said, you know, if I read this novel of yours next year and there's some characters, an overweight horn dog professor, I'm going to drive my Dodge Dakota to New York and kick your white suited ass. He didn't put me in the book. But we did spend a lot of time together. And on the last night of our visit, we went out to dinner alone. 
and we're talking about our children. Well, he's 25 years older than me, but our kids were about the same age. Uh, and they were all at the, we're going through the same thing. We're kind of ushering our kids into adulthood. And I told him, you know, this is the most wonderful experience of my life. Uh, I don't think I understood what love was until I had my daughter. And he said, yeah, you know, I married late. He didn't get married until he was 50. And he said, I had children soon after. And he said, and I think, my God, I could have missed this. They opened a door in my heart that I didn't know was there. So I think about serendipity when it comes to love. I think serendipity has been lost in, in matters of the heart. Because now we put all the list of characteristics we like in a web page and we, we search for our true love. And we no longer wait for that chance encounter at the bookstore. But hell, no one's at the bookstore. They're shopping online. Um, or sitting next to someone new at, at church. Or, or just looking into someone else's eyes and seeing that eureka of discovery. We check off the qualities that we like. And we put them in Match.com or eHarmony or whatever. And matchmaking websites have kind of replaced human communication. You know, I had a 15-year singlehood between my marriages, and I tried the online thing once, and all I got was a stalker. Really. Um, she, we talked, chatted online, and then she called and said, the next day, and said something like, that's a nice car you have. What? And then the, I was late to work the next day. I had a breakfast meeting. I went in, and my assistant said that uh, uh, your friend came by. What do you mean? She was wearing full combat gear. It should have been a clue that her screen name was Ms. Rambo. But anyway, that was freaky. So I'm glad that that didn't happen because not long after that conversation with Tom Wolf Suppen happened to me, I was living my nice, directed, orderly, divorce guy life. My books were alphabetized. My CDs were alphabetized. Life was orderly. I did laundry every day. There were never any dishes in my sink. I'd been divorced 15 years, and I figured I'd stay that way with a series of meaningless, but let's hope, uh, you know, erotically satisfying relationships in between. And then uh, I looked up one day and got struck by the thunder hammer of love. And I wasn't looking for her, but I found her. And I had long ago given up on the concept of remarriage, but, and also as a parent, I was done. You know, I'd raised three fine taxpayers, but they were gone. They were taxpayers. And now, 10 years later, I am remarried. I'm again waist deep in the adventure of fatherhood. Four more children. The laundry spills out into the hallway. The little boys have drawn pictures of Batman on the wallpaper. Dishes stack like triffids in the sink. And I have a messy, aggravating, utterly inefficient life. And every day is a bouquet of surprises. Because I wake up every morning, I put up my socks and shoes, and, you know, there's a new day of wonder and discovery. You know, why would you deny or refuse a gift like that? I wasn't looking for it, but I found it. And it was serendipity, that ability to make fortunate discoveries accidentally, that opened that door. And I think that's something we need to get back in touch with, because think of what you're missing. So, that's all I have to say on that. 
This has been a Communication Research Podcast, a production of the Communication Research Center at Boston University. For more information about the Communication Research Center, please go to www.bu.edu slash com slash crc. Thank you.